The people that eat here, they're why I'm doing it. People crave community, they crave relationship, they crave that personal connection with people. We are not designed to do life alone. We just can't, uh, at least not well. God is, loves us enough to make us interdependent people. It feels harder than ever to humanize one another. But the fact that they are a human means that they have an intrinsic value that is not contingent on their performance. I know they got no business being afraid of me. Let me be the first to let them know that by my way of being. There's a real connection with people. They are starting to pay attention. You know, they are concerned and they want to be part of the solution. People genuinely sense that things are not right in this world and they want it to be better. Hey, thanks for listening to the One Small Difference podcast and our series, How We See People, where we are exploring how we can move past polarization and division and into a place where we see other humans as humans, not categories, but other people to be valued and respected and listened to. This third and final episode is a continuation of our conversation with Chris Cox and Rachel Selby, a conversation you may have been listening to with an open heart and an open mind, or a conversation that you've been listening to thinking, I hate this. I don't agree with this at all. Well, this episode may be for you, second person, because it's a conversation really about what our role is and what responsibility we have to the collective whole. Now, we decided to call the episode Roles and Responsibilities, which now that I say it out loud is a pretty terrible title and sounds kind of boring, but I think you will be pleased with the content. If you are, would you please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts? And if you wouldn't mind hitting that subscribe button, that would be amazing. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mom. This is the One Small Difference Podcast. Rachel, I'm curious, in, in your uh, time campaigning for political office, as you are you're meeting people, having conversations about issues, how open did you feel that like regular everyday people were to kind of have their minds and hearts changed? Or did you feel like everybody was kind of just looking for someone that they could champion that aligned with all of their presupposed ideas? I think there's certainly more of the latter for sure, but where you could kind of turn the tide when people all the time would ask me, you know, why would you do this? You've got a great life. You've got a great family, a great career. Why, why would you, why would you jump into politics? Why would you ruin it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) What, what, what are you so passionate about? Um, And then I would have a chance to speak into because these issues, these, these main issues, and I don't see it moving any other way. And I see a legal angle and I want to help do that. And so then being able to talk about those problems and 
And it's a fine line balancing like the shock and the hope of some of these really real raw problems. But that's where I would gain traction because people are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea or that's not okay mm-hmm. with me. Um, or can, you know, what can I do about that? Or I want to, I want to help see that change too. So definitely I think in general, most people, and I find myself doing this too, you're looking for someone that aligns closest to what you believe would be in office and make decisions and change law to make the world better as you saw it was better. But sometimes there are ways to fix things or things that need to be fixed that you weren't aware of. So you've got to have these conversations. You've got to be open to that. I like to think of myself as a student of leadership and I've, I've read and studied a lot about great leaders. And uh, one of the things that has particularly stuck with me over the years is the idea that a great leader is someone that continually puts themselves in a room where they are not the smartest person um, or the most educated person. In other words, a great leader doesn't have all the answers. A great leader brings the people together that have the capacity to figure out what the answers are. And then they ask the right questions, right? Like that's what a leader does. I find that our political system currently is designed to not allow those types of people to get into those rooms because we are looking for a hero. We need confidence. Yes, because we don't feel confident. So we want someone Mm -hmm. else that's really confident. They might be 100% confident about the wrong thing. So we're (laughs) attracted to that because they're leading. They're they're making a decision. And we feel society can feel... Uh, very burdened, um, very worried. Oh, but they know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm going to follow that. Mm. So I think you're definitely onto something. There's not a lot of grace or room for a leader to say, this is a problem. I don't know how we're going to fix it. I don't have the answers. Nobody wants a politician to say that, <laughs> mm. but true leadership would and be seeking those experts and opinions and different side of angles, the blind spots to find out how are we going to fix this? How are we going to do it together? Because it's, it's a problem that we've never had before or that we've never addressed appropriately before. Yeah. Why, why do you think that we do that? Why? Because it's not just in, it's, politi- it's political, yes. It's also in organizational leadership. Like as long as we just get the right leader of this company, then we'll, we'll be the next Apple. Or, you know, the Bengals drafted Joe Burrow this year. And as long as we have a great quarterback he'll save the franchise. We're always after a hero that's going to save us um, as opposed. And I think that idea even is, is juxtaposed against the idea of the common good because the common good kind of says we all have a part to play in solving these problems. We all have, we all have a voice. We all need to contribute. Um, Whereas that mindset really says the only contribution I have is like placing my vote. Absolutely. I mean, you look at racism, you say racism is a problem in America. Whose problem is it? Oh, let's say it's the president's problem. No, if we say it's my problem, I've contributed to the problem. That changes the game. That gets uncomfortable real fast. And then if we can't identify of how, and we have to look to those others that are different or maybe perceived that racism in us to hear it, that's scary. Most people are not comfortable going there. No kidding. I'm not comfortable going there, right? Because if I'm implicated in the problem, then that means I'm implicated in the solution. And 
And it's a lot easier to just make a meme about it. Right. <laughs> but we won't move forward, I don't think, in any of these real problems until we admit we're part of it. We've played a part in it. Whether it's a passive part, whether it's a, a purposeful part, we've all played a part. If it's our problem, we can actually move forward. So you're talking kind of about collective accountability. Yeah. Even admitting that there is something that we have a role in can be challenging for some people. Now, not to be like offensive, but I mean, there are plenty of people who have opinions that say, if we're talking about race, that slavery was 200 years ago. It has nothing to do with me today. That is irrelevant. And I don't bear the burden or the responsibility of dealing with that, that the, the um, challenges that come up from the history that we inherit. Right. But if we're honest with ourselves, the civil rights movement was 50 years ago. You know, that's not really that long. And me as a 38 year old, I'm probably the first generation to be raised in a non-segregated environment from early childhood, not even understanding that segregation was a thing. And so if we're, if we step back for a moment and try to put things back in context, you realize that we're still in the infancy of processing the like the, the impact of generational decisions that we've inherited today. And sure, maybe directly, we didn't make the choice, but we have the responsibility to be present in that space and Mm -hmm. to struggle Mm -hmm. through that alongside our neighbors and just a kind of a quick background. I mean, I lived overseas for seven years in the former Soviet Union, and I worked really closely with a a minority ethnic Muslim community in the former Soviet Union, uh, the Crimean Tatar. And Stalin deported them in 1944. 50% died in transit to Central Asia because they were put on cattle cars and shipped across the Soviet Union. You know, you come to the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, you start to have a resurgence of a return to the ancestral homeland for this ethnic community. And they came back to Crimea. And I lived there with these people who had, you know, had significant challenges in their history. And it was very clear to me that they had legitimate and valid reasons why they did not want to be best friends with Russians. Mm-hmm. And it's because the Russians slaughtered their grandparents. I mean, it's a borderline genocidal kind of situation. And being there with those people, I realized that essentially the interactions that we have with communities that have been through trauma is not any different than what we would, you know, how we would engage with that with individual people who have gone Mm -hmm. through traumatic situations. You know, I mean, you don't minimize the experience that they had and you, and you don't kind of marginalize or give a quick solution to fix it, you simply sometimes are just there and being present and saying, yes, that is a valid fact. And that is very tragic. And I'm sorry for that. Sometimes that is the only appropriate thing to do, but I think we're afraid today to do that. I think it's really interesting. Just that narrative that you just gave, I can hear in your voice, how it changed you just by the experiences that you had and the the people that you experienced life with and the stories around you. And so it like just the experience 
changed you. And that past, their past doesn't have to be your responsibility or your, like we would say, like the past doesn't have to be my fault, but our future is still our responsibility. Like it, like I can't, yeah, it may or like past may or may not be my fault, but our future together is our responsibility collectively. You own the responsibility of a community of people and their story to be able for it to come out simply because of how many years you live life together. I think that's huge. That's like, that just tells that that's the path that we should all go down. It's like the more that we live life with one another, um, the more that we hear those stories. Hey guys, I wanted to pause the episode just for a second to acknowledge that the ideas that we have just been talking about surrounding collective responsibility and collective accountability, these are really difficult ideas to wrestle with. Dave and I are going to do that more in depth at the end of the show. Until then, Chris and Rachel discussing what is kind of like the final question. What questions should we be asking right now? I know where I have had a lot of hope recently is in reaching out to people, especially during the sunrest and the rioting times, and people that I would say I know pretty well, and just saying, I want to be an ally. I think I am an ally, but what can I do different or what can I do better? Or when do I need to shut up? Can you please speak that Mm -hmm. into me? Because I can't know as a white person, but I want to be an ally. And so when I've been vulnerable in those ways, that's been, that's been amazing. Um, That's where I can grow. And so I think that's a a good way to put it. No, you, you want to be an ally. How can you help me help you? I want to be an ally. As you were talking, Rachel, I was thinking, have you, um, have you had a moment where left to your own devices, you would have made one decision on behalf of equality in this season, yet after talking to and listening to that community of friends around you by asking those questions, that it shifted and you're like, oh, well, maybe I won't go do that, or maybe we won't skip that. We will do something different. Has it changed your trajectory of what actions you would take or what words you would say or what posts you would post because of that conversation? Yes, it would. Because one of the main things I got, one of the biggest feedbacks that I heard loud and clear was you can't remain silent and tell me you're an ally. Hmm. So where I've been quiet or held back or just, I'm, I'm very much an observer that is being translated by people that are suffering right now and looking for the white allies as Mm -hmm don't look here. Don't ask me. Um, so that was, that was really hard to hear, but I was so thankful for it to, to be more brave and because they need me to be. And if I'm going to be an ally, I said, I wanted to be, then I got to do what it takes. I've got to speak out. I've got to sometimes chip into the conversation. I've got to be more public. And, Mm -hmm. and so then you ask, (laughs) are you ready to do, but that's been really challenging. And it has, I've definitely been engaging more publicly and privately um, than I would have because I've been challenged in that way. I realized that's something I've failed in. I've been too quiet. And and one thing that struck me too that I've learned recently as a woman or a black woman and a white woman, it stings double hard because women should at least 
no matter what color of woman you are, you know, we've, we've, we've fought sexism, all this, you know, the patriarchy and all the stuff that every woman really should be able to identify with on a level, not nearly the same level as race, but on a level have more of an understanding than say maybe a man would from a African-American woman. So when a white woman in particular is silent or swings the opposite way, it is doubly painful. And I had never considered that before. So I know that for my relationships, that's been important too, to try to help convey or try to help introduce the idea of, hey, mm-hmm. as a woman, you know, we got to think about this. Yeah, I've, I've been asked that question too. And it's the, my question, my follow-up question to to my community that I, like I align with you 100% of um, a peer group that I can say, like, how can I be with you in this season? What? And then my follow-up question is, who do you, who do you need to be me to be vocal with? Because that was really important to me was that question of like, in all honesty, my African-American friends who said like, I need you to be vocal with more white people, not be vocal with more of our community so that we can know how woke you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. We actually need mediators who can help translate this messaging that the black community is trying to get out of equality in a way that majority culture would embrace the actual systemic and then generational issues in a way that is good for the whole. He's like, if you would get after that, then I would be really happy. I'm like, great. Like that's, that's part of the reason why there were people from majority culture on this podcast is because it's like, we, we have an audience here. And those of you who are listening, my guess is the majority are from majority culture. It's okay for us to talk to each other and process through things as mediators on behalf of our friends who are asking for equality and it's not translating well to us as an ask for equality like that's fair for us to play that role so i realized that when we start talking about collective accountability or collective responsibility people start to get a little weirded out they're like well wait a minute what are you actually talking about So we thought it might be interesting to give a little bit of a framework for how to think about this, but with the disclaimer that neither of us are sociologists or philosophers or anything like that. And there are people who have written significant papers on this that are way smarter than we are. And you can go check all that out and it's really complicated, but David, could you kind of summarize, like, what are we talking about when we talk about collective responsibility and or collective accountability? So if we're talking about responsibility versus accountability, I think maybe a simple way to break it down would be to recognize that responsibility is dealing with the burden of agency. So if I say, did you kill a man? Then I'm asking, no. <laughs> I'm glad to know that. I'm asking, are you the agent that actually took the life, uh-huh. right? So that can be something that we can argue about in a court of law. And so that's a legal kind of liability issue there, you know. Sure. Um, if we're talking about accountability, what we're saying is, as a community, we have history to look upon to inform us as we're making decisions that create future society. And we will be held accountable in three ways. First of all, to history that will chronicle the ways that we make decisions. Number two, to our fellow neighbor who is 
going to hold us to a standard of excellence as we develop ideas that form society. Number three, to our grandchildren for the stories that we're making and the societies that we're creating with the ways that we choose to interact with each other right now. But one of the big pushbacks to the idea of collective responsibility and or collective accountability is actually the word collective. That there is some sort of we as opposed to me. Right? Like that that actually is a pushback because we have very much celebrated the idea of individual independence as opposed to interdependence. Even those ideas, you might be listening right now and be like, whoa, where are these guys going? What are, what are they talking about? We have so elevated the opportunity that each of us have for individual rights that we have stopped in a lot of cases asking the question, where do those rights end? At what point do my rights end? And the answer is when they infringe on the rights of somebody else. That's a real common answer. I would say a better answer would be when you see yourself as an individual within a whole. When you stop thinking of yourself as an individual only and start thinking of yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. So if we take these ideas and back up all the way to the founding of the United States, Kevin, we have founding documents that are collectively written from the perspective of plurality. Mm -hmm. Um, You have we the people, right? Yep. You have we believe these truths to be self-evident. And we are rejecting an authoritarian governmental hand that is imposing what he thinks yeah. the common good is for the people themselves. Yeah, those founding documents are they're collective documents and we use them a lot to advocate for our own individual rights. They're a mandate for our own individual rights and they're certainly they certainly are that. They certainly do provide individual rights. But they also are establishing a collective. They're they're written from a community standpoint. It's saying like you're not looking out for the best thing for our community. And so we're going to do it ourselves, (laughs) essentially. The Declaration of Independence is actually a political document that is not designed to advocate for our individual freedoms as much as it is to say, we're going to build something different together. We are all in this together. And when they all sign that document together, they knew that they were going to have to deal with the repercussions of signing that document together. I have found that people are a little bit afraid of that phrase, we're all in this together. I've even heard people blast it. Like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But it's so true. We are all in this together. Not just COVID, life. Right. Well, and even at the very end, the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence, it says... We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I mean, they're just laying it all out there, and they're willing to sacrifice everything that they have as individuals in order to create something that is better for everyone involved. Mm. That's risky. It is risky, and it's beautiful. 
I always say that the founding documents are aspirational in the sense that they are not descriptive of our values as much as they are aspirational. And so historically speaking, we can look at all kinds of situations and circumstances where the generation that lived did not live up to those values that were written there. When we talk about collective accountability, responsibility, what we're really saying is that the earth now belongs to the current generation. It doesn't belong to anyone else. Like what we do matters. And if we're living for the common good, that means that we have to think about our lives in relation to all the people around us. And even globally, it's not just the United States as the central character in the in the meta narrative either. And multi-generationally, because it's not just this generation that's impacted by our decisions. We should be casting vision for a reality that we dream of and maybe we can get partway there. It's our responsibility to work these things out. If we can't, then we know that Elon Musk will. (laughs) We hope that the last few episodes of the One Small Difference podcast have been thought-provoking and have caused you to think about people that are around you in a different way. We've highlighted a handful of different Topics to think about more in depth, things like belonging and brokenness, dialogue and diversity, as well as role and responsibility. If we're aware of ideas like these, then we can start to process the reality around us in a better way. When we start to appreciate the brokenness that exists in the lives of every person that surrounds us, appreciate the unique diversity that every differing perspective brings to the table, and understand our role in community as it relates to the day-to-day, the way that we run our business, and the societies that we're building in the future, I think that we are moving in a more holistic and healthy direction. So go out and live today in a way that will matter in 100 years. Shalom.